Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Kind of like to start off this morning with a little bit of an informal poll. Um, And just kind of ask you by a show of hands, given all of the commitments and and all of the responsibilities um, and all the activities that you're involved with in your life, um, how many would say that your life... Um, your job, your relationships have become simpler over time? Or how many would say your life, your job, your relationships have become busier, more complex, and less manageable over time? Just like over the last five years. How many would say, given all the things that I am involved with in my life right now, my life has actually gotten simpler over the last five years? A few, not bad. How many would say, actually, in truth, Given all the stuff that I'm involved in right now, over the last five years, my life has become busier, more complex, and far less manageable than it has been. Yeah, that's the majority of us. How many would like to have and live a simpler life? That's everyone. Wouldn't it be nice if life was like the Staples commercial? You know, you just hit the easy button and it all just works out. Unfortunately, there is no such thing. Uh, We're starting this new year with a new series called Simple Faith. Scott introduced it last week, and and I want to make very, very clear to every one of us, when we're talking about simple faith, please do not mistake this idea that when we're talking about simple, that it's about what is easy, what is going to be effortless, you know, what is simplistic, uh, what is superficial. Easy is not necessarily, I mean, uh, (laughs) excuse me, simple is not necessarily easy. Simple is not even effortless, and simple is not the same as simplistic. In fact, as we look at some of these things this morning, you're going to find out it's a lot harder, but it is simpler. Because when we talk about simplicity, what we're talking about is clarity. We're talking about focus. We're talking about priority. We're talking about doing the right things in the right way at the right times for the right reasons. That's really at the heart of what we're talking about. It's having focus. And understanding there's some, that I can't do everything. And there's some things that I should give my attention and my focus to. And there's other things I just got to say no to. And particularly when it comes to our faith. Nearly 2,000 years ago, an old man in a sparse cell in exile on a very small island off the coast of Greece sat down and put pen to scroll And wrote some words. He was the last of his generation. By now all the other disciples. All the other apostles. Have pretty much died off. One guy left. And he is in exile for his faith. His name is John. John the disciple. Often referred to in scripture. As the disciple Jesus loved. Or the beloved disciple. And John sits down. He is about to pass the torch as it were, this torch that has been burning so brightly in his own heart, in his own life, for all of these years now, and at the age of 70, 80, maybe 90 years old, he's writing down what he believes to be of primary importance. What does it matter to him? What's of primary significance? If he is passing this torch to the next generation of believers, what is it that he wants them to understand? If you take nothing else away from the Christian faith, if you boil it down to what, is it, what does it come down to at its simplest, what does it mean? And John writes these words. 
Here is what we announced to everyone about the word of life. He was already here from the beginning. We have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked at him. Our hands have touched him. That life has appeared and we have seen him. We give witness about him and we announce to you that same eternal life. He was already with the Father. He has appeared to us and we announce to you what we have seen and heard. We do so so that you can share life together with us and we share life with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing this to make our joy complete. Here's the message we've heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Suppose we say we share life with God, but still walk in the darkness. Then we're lying. We're not living by the truth. But if we walk in the light just as he is in the light, then we share life with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, makes us pure from all sin. Suppose we claim claim that we're without sin. Then we're fooling ourselves. The truth is not in us. But God is faithful and fair. And if we admit that we have sinned, he will forgive our sins. He will forgive every wrong thing we have ever done, and he will make us pure. If we say we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Chapter 2, 1 John, verse 5. If anyone obeys God's word, then God's love is truly made complete in that person. And here is how we know we belong to him. Those who claim to belong to him must live just as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. Instead, I'm writing you one you've heard before. You had it since the beginning. But I am writing what amounts to a new command. Its truth was shown in how Jesus lived and is also shown in how you love live the darkness is passing away the true light is already shining suppose someone claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister then he's still in the darkness those who love their brothers and sisters are living in the light there is nothing in them to make them fall into sin but those who hate a brother or sister are in darkness they walk around in the darkness they don't know where they're going the darkness has made them blind he says if you boil it all down to this This is why I'm writing to you, so that you would share in this life together with us, and the life that we share together, we share together with him. In other words, in fact, you find as you trace all the way through this letter, and it's a very short letter, what John is saying is it's all about love. You trace it. It's it's a short letter. You can read it all in one sitting very, very quickly, but the one thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again is this aspect of love. In fact, 51 times the word is used in some form or another throughout this whole letter. Over and over again, he keeps hammering away at this. What's of primary importance? What really matters? Where should our focus be? He says, this is what it is. What do I want to pass on to the next generation? It's all about love. If you want to focus the Christian life on where it ought to be, if you want a description, a one-word description of what the Christian life is all about, it is about love. And this morning, we're going to take a look at that. The simple truth about love. Because it's a huge and complex issue. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's a lot to it. But there are some things that John says you got to get a handle on. There's some simple truths that you need to know about love. And one of the first ones is you got to understand love requires a meaningful connection. Now, that ought to be self-evident. Unfortunately, it is not. Because there is probably no more misused and misunderstood word in our language than the word love. 
It has lost its meaning. I use that same word. We use the word to describe our deepest, most intimate relationship with our husband or wife and turn around and use the same word to describe our relationship with our dog. Some of you do anyway. We use that word to describe our favorite TV program, our favorite restaurant, how we feel about our car. I mean, that word has almost lost its meaning. We think of it in terms of, of abstract terms, that it's, that it's theoretical. I love everybody. We refer to it as an accident, like something we have no control over. We fall in love, and then we fall out of love, like we have no control over this, that it's an emotion, that it's those warm, tingly feelings that we get inside towards one person or another. I had a friend in college, every time he saw a pretty girl, his first comment was, I think I'm in love. (laughs) It was always quick to remind me, I think it had to do with another L word, lust. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong, I love warm, tingly feelings. You know, Scott talked last week about about when he first saw his wife for the very first time, and and just kind of, wow, that just hit him. And I remember the first time I saw Betty in a way that I'd never seen her before. We had almost grown up together, but there was this one particular, it was a youth group activity at our church, and she was riding in a different car than I was. I was riding shotgun in one car, she was in the back seat of another car, and she turned around and looked through the rearview mirror, and all of a sudden I was just like, I melted. I was in love. <laughs> I love the warm, tingly feelings, but any mature understanding has got to understand love is much deeper than feelings. And it is much deeper than theory. And it is much deeper than the way that we so often use it in our ongoing conversation. It's about meaningful connection. It's about commitment. In fact, when I meet with couples in premarital counseling, I talk to them about the word covenant, which is the one that God uses so often to describe love. It is a binding agreement, a covenant to say, I will love you no matter what. John described it this way. We announce to you what we have seen and heard so that you can share life together with us. He's talking about love. And we share life with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There's a commitment. There's a connection there. There's something very, very solid about that. Now, I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit this, but, but in the church that I grew up in and in the youth group that I was a part of, I was the catch You're laughing like that can't possibly be true. <laughs> but my wife told me this, that I would, oh boy, if you could date Ken Jensen, boy, that was it. Of course, it only took less than the first year of marriage for, to, to dispel that whole idea completely, you know? Because that's the thing. It's real easy to love somebody from a distance and say, oh wow, I think I'm in love. But you live with that person for any length of time, you discover there's a lot more to love than just what that person looks like. Because love is much deeper than my emotions. It is much deeper than those warm, fuzzy feelings. It is a connection. It is a commitment. And notice, by the way, the way that John describes it is it's a two-way commitment. It's a two-way connection. There is this vertical connection that I have with God because of his love expressed to me through Jesus Christ on the cross. I have a relationship with him. He has committed himself to me, and I commit myself back to him, and I have a relationship with him, a love relationship with God. But that must translate itself into my relationship with his people. That's what John keeps saying. And he hammers away at it over and over and over again. My love for God is measured by my love for God's people. 
In fact, it is the primary way of measuring the condition of my heart. It is the primary way of measuring the, the, the attitude of my love and my connection. Is how am I loving the people around me? John says, whoever loves his brother lives in the light. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Too often, too often Christians and churches have described spiritual maturity in terms of knowledge. And John says, no, no, no. If the knowledge does not translate into the relationships, you don't got it. You don't get it. John was given the nickname, the disciple Jesus loved. And I don't think it's because Jesus loved him more than any others. It's that John got it. John understood. That's what it's about. And all too often in our churches, we define those who are spiritually mature by one set of measurements. And I have found very often that people who know a whole lot don't seem to love other people very much. I don't know how many of you read uh, USA Today. Uh, This was given to me. It's the Wednesday edition of USA Today, the life section, or as I call it, News McNuggets. But there was a poll that was recently done, and the title is Faith Found Outside the Church. The subtitle is Non-Attendees Often Don't Agree with the Institution. A new survey of U.S. adults who don't go to church, even on holidays, finds 72% say God or a supreme being actually exists. They believe in God. They believe in some form of God. But just as many, 72% also say the church is full of hypocrites. In fact, 44% agree with the statement, Christians get on my nerves. The survey defines unchurched people as those who have not attended a religious service in a church, synagogue, or mosque at any time in the last six months. And more than one in five, 22% of Americans say they never go to church. That is the highest ever recorded in any one of these polls that have been made. And the biggest reason, the biggest reason, most of the unchurched, 86% say they believe that they can have a good relationship with God without belonging to a church. And 79% say Christianity today is more about organized religion than loving God and loving people. Now that is the perception of those outside the church. That the only two things that we are called to do, the only two things that we are called to focus on, we're not doing very well. Because people outside the church look at the church and say, that is the one thing I do not see there. And sadly, sadly, I have to admit that all too often, that perception is rooted in reality. Our primary goal on Sunday morning, when we gather together, is to help people connect with God. We help them express their love for God. We're here to help people do that, to make that connection, to express their love for God in worship, to learn about God's love for them in teaching, to to, to grow together in all this. But here's the thing. We do it in community. And there's a reason for that. Because it's real easy to sit and sing a song and be moved emotionally and think to myself, I must really love God. Look at how this song makes me feel. Or listen to a word that's being taught or the word of God being preached and and it resonates in my heart and think, I must really love God because I feel like he's speaking to me. 
But if I walk out of this room and I don't make a deeper connection with the people around me and the people in my life and the people in my church, then I'm just fooling myself. And that's what John keeps hammering away at. Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen because love is not theory. Love is not emotion. In fact, he goes on, chapter five. This is how we know who the children of God are. You wanna know what the test is? Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. He just keeps hammering away, hammering away, hammering away. He says, you need to understand, if you cannot love your brother, if you cannot love your sister, if you cannot love God's people, then you don't really love God. That's the simple truth. And along with that comes a very, very important thing is that I gotta be honest with myself about that. That another simple truth is that love deepens with confession. Confession is absolutely necessary for the deepening of love because nothing causes disconnect more than sin. Sin is the thing that junks up my relationships with other people. Sin is the thing that dries and shrivels up my heart. Sin is the thing that destroys and damages community. John describes it this way. If we say that we share life with God, but we still walk in the darkness, then we're lying. Verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we share life with one another. He says this darkness thing is what junks up our relationship, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. I can't say that I love God and yet exclude him from these very, very private parts of my life, the real me, the real who I am. And the trouble is that it's, it is possible to delude ourselves about the true condition of our hearts. It's possible to do that. We get really good at giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But John says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living the truth. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing his word has no place in our hearts. See, the problem is we usually tend to think of sin as the big things. You know, it's the really big, big things that none of us would ever do. I've never committed murder, never committed adultery. I mean, if you would go out today, this afternoon, and just walk down the street and randomly sample all the way across the board and just ask people, what do you think about the Ten Commandments? I bet you most people that you talk to would say, I try to live my life by them. I try to live a good life. I try to live by the Ten Commandments. But if you ask those same people, name five of them, just half of them, I bet you'd, you'd get blank stares. <laughs> kind of like, you know, seven dwarfs. Uh, sneezy, snow, uh, do not, uh, uh, thou shalt, oh, thou shalt not kill. I think that's one of them. Because we think of sin as these big things. But the truth is, it's much more pervasive than that. John describes it this way. The cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do. Does that sound vaguely familiar to any of you? (laughs) Do you know anybody who struggles with a little bit of mismanaged desire and cravings? Do you know anybody that maybe has a little bit of a problem with lust or pride or boasting? Anybody? Is that anybody you? See, the truth is that love is rooted in honesty, and it's got to start by being honest with myself about the real me. The great revealer of the truth of our heart 
is the way that we interact with other people. It really is. Mismanaged desire in my life works itself out in, in, in shading the truth just a little bit so that I can get my way. Or, or holding a tight grip on my stuff that may, in a way that makes me unwilling to share with someone who is in need. Or my pride that drives me to take credit for things that I really don't deserve the credit for. Or maybe to talk badly behind somebody's back out of my own envy and jealousy. Or to be so preoccupied with myself that I just don't even listen or notice other people. I have found that the great revealer of my heart is Southwest Airlines. There is something about that ABC boarding thing that just brings out the worst in me. You know, it's just like you, you get there early and, you know, you stand in line and you get right up in that A line because you don't want. This last um, couple weeks ago, Betty and I decided to take a few ti- uh, some time off, a few days off, and we, we took a, just a short trip. And they revamped the whole thing. Now they board by A, but they also have you line up by number on your boarding card now. I don't know if any of you have tried this. And so there's the, the group that's 1 through 10 and then 10 through 20 and 20 through 30 and 30 through 40. And then there's the B group. And I still find myself jockeying for position. Because if I've got A28, I still try to get to the front of that A20 through 30 group, even though my number's 28. And if somebody with a higher number than me is in front of me, I make sure I want to let them know they're supposed to be behind me. But the truth is, every seat on that plane is exactly the same. Every one of them. There is no difference between any of those seats on that plane. But I find in myself, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta weasel my way in there. I gotta get up to the front. There are things like that that happen in your life and my life every day that reveals the true nature of our hearts. Because the true nature of our hearts have these mismanaged desires and cravings and struggles with lust and has a problem with pride and boasting in me first. The good news is The really good news John has for us is God sees all that junk and he still loves us. See, that's the good news. That's the good news. He sees the truth about us even though we wouldn't want him to. He sees it anyway and he still loves us. He still loves the real you, the junked up heart in you, the junked up heart in me. He still loves me and all he asks is that I would be honest about it. That's all that he says. Be honest about it. John says, if we confess, if we admit, if we own up to our own sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He won't just forgive the past. He will start about this transformation of the heart, this purification of the heart that'll start cleaning out all that junk that just just messes stuff up that messes up our relationship with him, that messes up our relationships with each other. God will do that work, but we gotta own up to it. Every one of us. Love takes honesty, and that means confession. I gotta be honest with myself, I gotta be honest with God, and I gotta be honest with the people around me. And when I do that, John says, love gets a chance to take a foothold in my life. And it starts to grow. Now, there's one more thing. 
as God begins to do this cleanup and transformation of our hearts, there's one thing you gotta understand, and it's the last thing that John addresses here in this section, is that this kind of love takes ongoing cultivation. Okay, this is not one of those things, you read the Bible, you memorize the verse, you got it down, set for life. Okay, that is not how this works. This is a lifelong learning process. Over and over and over again, it is learning how to love. John says, I'm not writing you anything you haven't heard before. In fact, that's what he says. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have heard from the beginning. He says, this is nothing new to you. I am just echoing the words of Jesus. When Jesus was asked, what does it boil down to? What really matters? What are the essentials? What is, what is this faith in its simplest form? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself said, that's nothing new to you either because all of the law and all of the prophets are summed up in that. This is stuff you have heard over and over and over again. This is nothing new. And yet, he says, at the same time, it is. Verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. Now let me stop right there for a moment. How is this old commandment new? What does he mean? It doesn't make sense to me. It is new in the way that Jesus showed us what it looks like. It is new because of Jesus. See, Jesus expanded the boundaries. It is new in the way that Jesus defined neighbor. Because for most people at that time, and for us as well, neighbor is who we're close to. Who we already like a little bit anyway, so it's easy to love them. But Jesus redefined neighbor. Jesus defined neighbor in terms of the Samaritan, the Gentile, the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner, the outsider, the marginalized. He expanded the definition of neighbor, and then he expanded what love looks like. Because love looks like giving time for, and sharing life with, and caring about, and even, even sacrificing for. That's a lot newer than I thought. And even new into those whom he extended it to. Not to those who earn it, but to those who need it. Jesus redefined that old commandment and gave it new meaning. And God has brilliantly, brilliantly, ingeniously designed a way to cultivate love in your life. It's called other people. Other people. Because other people will frustrate you. Other people will disappoint you. Other people will anger you. Other people will hurt you. Other people will compete against you. Other people will not want your will to be done. They want their will to be done. Other people is the way that God cultivates love in your own heart. He does it through other people, through difficult people, through impossible people. And if you don't have any of those difficult, impossible people in your life, give me a call this week. I got a list. I'll share some of them with you. It is God's genius. It is God's wisdom, Scripture says, that his love is shown in the church. That's why 
My connection with God has got to include my connection with other people. Because I don't know the love of God until I have to extend it to those who are unlovable. It's why he keeps this connection not only vertical, but horizontal. And every day, in every relationship, in every circumstance, through every difficulty, with every person in your life, this commandment comes up new. It comes up new every single time. Lloyd John Ogilvie, who for years was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, wrote these words. We never outgrow the commandment. The Christian life is a million new beginnings instigated by the fresh challenge to love others as Christ has loved us. It is the reorienting truth in the middle of conflict. It is our mandate when dealing with difficult and impossible people. However much we are hurt or disappointed with people, the commandment comes, becomes Christ's new command for what we are to do. Doing love is the difference. Jesus did the commandment. He redefined the meaning of neighbor as all God's people. He clarified love as knowing no limits. John called Christians back to the basic commandment, not as a lovely platitude, but as the basis of action and daily living. The old commandment becomes new each time we see the truth of Christ pierce the darkness of prejudice and preconception. In the light, we see people for who they really are in their need. As the darkness lifts, the reality of the person is exposed, and we are challenged again to do love. For John, light equals love, and darkness equals hate. The dawn has come in Jesus Christ, and the darkness is already passing away. It's also true for each of us every day. As Christ dawns on each new perplexing situation and problematic person. John put it this way. I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Would you bow your heads with me? John, in echoing the words of Jesus, is essentially telling us this. It is all about love. So the question or questions I'd like you to ask yourself at the beginning of this new year. Three of them. The first is, what am I doing to deepen my connection with God? This year, as you head into this new year, what are you going to do that will deepen your connection with God intentionally, purposefully, meaningfully? Or is it just going to be some casual when the mood strikes kind of a thing? Every one of us know the truth. No relationship exists and grows that way. You can't have a relationship with a wife or a husband or a child that only strikes when the mood strikes. So maybe for you, it's making a commitment. Maybe the commitment for you this morning is simply to get serious about your search for God. You're here this morning because you're beginning to search. The commitment is, I'm going to follow this through. I'm going to find this relationship that God has for me. Maybe you've been on that search for a while, and maybe this morning is to do something about it. It's time to step in and make the commitment. Say, okay, God, you know me through and through. You see all the junk in my life that I keep well hidden from everybody else. I even keep it hidden from myself sometimes, but the truth is, you know who I really am, and I need your forgiveness. I'm going to trust my life into your hands. 
I want you to do that changing, purifying process, life transformation in my own heart. Maybe you made that commitment, but it's time to make it public and be baptized and make that stand publicly. So the question, what am I going to do this year to deepen my connection with God? Second question is, what am I going to do this year to deepen my connection with God's people? For some of you, that might mean committing to regular times of worship in community. Seeing the value of that. Committing yourself to that. For some of you, it might mean getting involved in a small group and learning to do life together. For some of you, it might mean taking the journey class and committing myself to this group of believers to do life together. What am I going to do this year to deepen my connection with God's people? And then the third question I'd like you to ask yourself is, what am I going to do this year to help people in my life connect with God? And that might mean deliberately getting closer to the people in your life who don't know God. It might be taking loving and caring interest in an individual that you've kind of ignored up till now. It might mean sharing your faith, sharing your life, inviting a friend. A lot of ways it can be worked out. But the three questions, what am I going to do this year to deepen my connection with God? What am I going to do this year to deepen my connection with God's people? And what am I going to do this year to help other people connect with God? And make a decision about that this morning at least one of those three questions and say, this is what I'm going to do. Lord, thank you for loving us. Even though we weren't so lovely to look at. Even with all the junk and the garbage that's deep within our hearts that we hide from everyone around us and even don't want to look at ourselves. Thank you for loving us for who we really are for coming and giving your life so that we could find forgiveness, find restoration, find a cleaning for our disordered, junked up hearts. Teach us, Lord, as we deepen our commitment to you and deepen our commitment to each other. And help us, Lord, to bring that connection to the people around us so they might share in the joy and the life together we have with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.